0: Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. You know, Paul's been moving us from doctrine to duty, right? As only he can. He's integrating our new attitudes to new actions, we began that transition last time. We moved from that section, chapters 1 to 11 from Romans to 12 to 15. And we began with the idea of living transformed lives, renewing our minds, verses 1 and 2. And that's where we saw that our dedication to God is demonstrated when you offer your body in worship as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Presuming, of course, you're in Christ, you've been saved, you've been justified by faith, right? That's what makes it possible. And by virtue of living this new transformed life that you're on this journey of doing, you're being renewed by a new, better, biblically based way of thinking. And then here we find another dramatic way in which we worship God with our new transformed lives. And that is by demonstrating life in the body, real Christianity in the life of a local church body. And all that means is we have a faith that works, it does something. Doesn't just sit. And to do that, we have to serve others. And to do that, you have to serve humbly, humility. And you're going to see that played out next time as Paul gets into laying out the spiritual gifts of the church. And we'll take some time there. So, again, our faith. Let me say again as I began it's not a mere professing faith. We've seen the headlines. Joshua Harris, former pastor and author, Hillsong United's worship leader, both within a week after several years of ministry in and around the church, have apparently fallen away from the faith. And they're betraying, as I blogged, the last couple of weeks, I think a sense of pride. I think a sense of lack of humility and the lack of being grounded totally in the word of Christ. In total, verse 2 of Romans 12, I think they were being conformed to this world. And that proves something significant. It is one thing to know about Jesus, to be around Jesus, even serve in his name, name, and it's quite another thing to be in Christ, to have him in you, and to truly love him. And that's where life in the body, real Christianity, is all about. That's Paul's big idea here. He's setting the tone in the chapter here with this passage, because it's going to feed into all the rest of the exhortations and the specific marks of a believer that we'll go through through chapter 15. And he lets us know, again, a Christian life starts with a renewed mind that can test, discern the will of God, and it leads us to then think rightly about our grace gifts and how we're going to use them. So in this text, he's going to do that in two ways. Number one, he's going to command us to have humble minds, and number two, to be part of a unified body, humble minds, unified body. And again, a body is a body of believers, the local church. Let's look at verse 3 here, this humble mind. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul is reestablishing his authority to start here as an apostle and where he gets this message from. Because he's writing based on the grace God has given him, right? We can only do in ministry what God's grace enables us to do. That's going to play out throughout this passage, the chapter, etc. And he's focusing in this verse on humility. He says, we're not to be high-minded. How else would you define that today? This first word that popped in my head was conceited. We need humility, a biblical definition of humility is having a right view of yourself, to look at yourself as God does. And it's repeated, in other words. It's a, it's a big deal. Look at the middle of verse 16 of this chapter, where Paul is saying, never be wise in your own sight. And there's a context for this. Like everything else, it's Romans eleven nine 9 through 11. He's talking about a warning in 1120 that Paul made to the Gentiles being grafted into that tree, that same root of faith with the Jews. You know, the Gentiles are thinking, hey, the Jews blew it. They're not coming to Christ in any great number. Yeah, I hear about this remnant. But we're the ones. This is the church age, the time of the Gentiles. And so Paul tells them in 1120, if you just go back a page in your Bible, they were broken off. He says they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. He's talking to Gentiles. So do not become proud, but fear. It's humility again, okay? Don't brag about this faith and that you think it's all inclusive for you. Because remember, the Jews and the Gentiles, they were having pride issues that go back to chapter two in this book and really is the focus of nine through 11, how they're treating each other. The New Living Translation is a modern translation. It says this, Don't think you are better than you really are. And that's pretty good. Because a verse 2 renewed mind isn't going to think too highly of itself. A renewed mind should be a humble mind. Really should. Instead, Paul's saying, on the positive side, have sober judgment about ourselves. Interesting metaphor. Sober. When you think sober, you think the opposite is intoxication, drunkenness. One commentator said, if we're not careful, we're in danger of becoming egoholics. Something to that. The idea is to think right. Think right of yourself. Have a sound, self-controlled mind and modesty about yourself. Balance thinking about yourself. Because on the one hand, most of us think too highly of ourselves. I think that's our more common problem. Pride and selfishness kicks in there. And then we have to be careful about that. But then... On the other hand, we can go overboard and we can put ourselves down excessively to the point where you come off looking like you have false modesty. You know, you can't take a compliment well. You've seen that or you've done that. You want to look modest when in fact you don't. It's like that phrase that really gets me. I have a family member near and dear to my heart. My wife will know who I'm talking about. He always says in my humble opinion, and then he gives you an opinion that's not so humble really hate when that happens. Also, we might have the problem of having a faulty view or evaluation of ourselves because nothing causes more damage in a local church than a believer who overrates himself and tries to do a ministry he or she is not gifted to do. That was a huge issue in the Corinthian church, I think. And Paul wants to avoid having that same offense crop up in the church at Rome so he's dealing with it in this letter, because he did that with Corinth. If you ever read 1 Corinthians, it's just one question, crisis, controversy after another. That's how the letter fleshes out. And they were at odds with each other a little bit in Corinth over lifestyle issues. Food offered to idols. Oh, you're eating that? Really? Because I don't eat that. It was offered to idols, man. Whoa. And there were new special days. And there were problems in observing the Lord's Supper. Rich people were getting there early, eating all the food leaving nothing for the poor people, poorer. Same kind of issues that, you know, we have today in Christianity. We today argue about the source of miracle signs and wonders, charismatic spiritual gifts. And the problem of pride can seep into all of that on both sides. really can. In doctrine. You know, the temptation for us today is kind of like to say, I do this and I don't do that, and why don't you? Pride, hyperjudgmentalism, that can infect or destroy a church or a home, for that matter. I'll be honest with you, there are churches in the family-integrated church movement, the FIC movement, being involved, as I am now, in that network nationally. Pastors and I talk, and there has been divisions in the church, some of those churches over secondary matters over the past several years that include family life, dress codes, media, schooling, a number of things. And we have convictions in those areas. That's fine to have. What we're lacking, the big deal that some of those churches are lacking in their people is a lack of humility and grace mixed with a lack of wisdom in dealing with one another. So this call to humility is big. It was important in preparation, I think in Paul's mind, when we get to chapters 14 and 15 where we're going to get into all of you that want to do this thing, figure out Christian liberty, freedom, ethics. We're going to get there. Chapters 14 and 15 deal with it head on. But before we get into all that and these issues of lifestyle and conscience, humility has to reign in our hearts no matter what. Because if you're going to do life together in community, right, you can't judge one another's choices by conscience can't condemn people there. So there can be a failure to love one another in the church. We experienced that here to a degree a year ago. It's a centuries-old problem in the church. Why do you think Paul gave us 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter? I've told you before, that's not meant for marriages. And I used it in my own wedding. The context of that is love for the church in the midst of a three-chapter section on spiritual gifts. Their abuse, arguing over it, problems over it. And that's when Paul says, hey, by the way, church, love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc., etc. Sometimes the opposite is true of ourselves, too. We can undervalue ourselves. We're talking about being humble, right? Because you can't think too lowly of yourself either. The wonderful thing about spiritual gifts, we're going to find out in the next passage, God gifts you oftentimes in a way that doesn't jibe with your natural talents or skills. And sometimes he takes those gifts and stretches them. And the reason he does that, God can stretch you and he'll gift you in ways that you don't expect sometimes. Like Moses had a speech impediment. God says, Okay, great, I'll make you preacher. Well, what happened there? Who gets the glory there? God does. That's the motive. That's the idea, ultimately. So, both attitudes of thinking about ourselves are wrong. Don't get caught up in the illness of comparisonitis. Getcha. I think one of the best statements on humility comes again from Paul, Philippians 2. This is a passage of scripture. If we haven't yet committed to memory as a church, we will. 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, you can never go wrong doing that. That doesn't need a lot of exposition. But then here's something interesting. Paul in this text, this verse says this Come, hum- this humble mind of his comes as a result of a measure of faith that's assigned I think it's appointed or supplied to people by God. And there's a scholarly debate among theologians on what this measure of faith thing exactly means. What's he talking about? Because there's a school of thought that Paul is referring to God's standard of faith as a measurement, meaning the saving faith that God gave us to believe, that that should enable us then to be humble. Because in other words, if you know that you're justified by faith alone and Christ alone alone, by God's grace alone, you're not going to boast, right? We can't. So we're going to tend to think of ourselves, that way of thinking, we're going to think of ourselves in a humble, more humble way, sober way. And the word can be translated from the Greek to mean that. I think there's a both and here, though. I think there's a both and that makes sense. Because I favor the other school of thought that's driven more by the immediate context here and some supporting scripture that says this measure of faith means it's the apportioning out of sanctifying faith that God gives out by God, God gives out to different people in different levels. Okay? I think that way, because the next phrase talks about the Lord, it says assigning or divvying out measures of faith to his people. And then you're going to have this list of spiritual gifts that follow. So I think that makes sense. So I think this is about the amount of faith that a person gets and then gives out. Look at verse 6, which we'll dig into next time. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, at the end it says, in proportion to our faith. So that suggests some people have more faith than others. And in 2 Corinthians 10, he talks the same way about God assigning us areas or degrees of influence. Not everybody in the church, that's what I'm getting at, not everybody in the church exercises their faith equally, or in the same way. That's the point. God has given some of you more faith than me. Or I have more faith than you in a sanctifying way. I think that's why we have the example, by the way, of the men and women in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews 11, right? They had exceptional faith. That's why not everyone's listed in there. Also, Ephesians 4 kind of interconnects, I think, faith and gifts when he's talking about us living patiently and humbly with one another in love. So I think that's what the measure of faith is all about. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, each person should lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and which God has called him to. So there's this individual calling and gifting that God is giving to people. In fact, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would, <clears throat> the next book in your New Testament, of course. And you'll remember a couple of years ago we studied 1 Corinthians this section exhaustively, but I want to, you to see how I support my idea of this measure of faith. 1 Corinthians 12.4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And look at the beginning of verse 6. And there are varieties of activities, But God empowers them all and everyone. And faith, faith is even mentioned, if you look at verse 9 there, as a gift, as a spiritual gift. That means not everybody has it because not everybody gets the same spiritual gifts. We'll learn that as we go along. Look at the middle of verse 11 there, talking about those things that are empowered by God and the Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So some of you in this church have a spiritual gift to do certain things that others cannot do as well. They're not as spiritually empowered. So everything I just showed you really parallels our text, okay? That, how, does that, how does that relate to faith? It means that some of us can bear trials, testing, tribulation, and encourage others to do that just better than others. Don't you tend to want to hang around people like that? Ah, that's a person of faith. I want to have lunch with them. I need some faith. I need a measure of faith from that person, because that person has received a great measure of faith as a spiritual gift. And then some of us in making choices, life choices, sometimes uh, some of us need black and white revealed in Scripture what I can or can't do. And then there are other people with a measure of faith as a grace gift that can say, I just I'm striking out by faith, and I'm going to do what the Lord is calling me to do. That can be a gift of grace. So the main idea in connecting verses 1 and 2 to 3 here is a dedicated life to God is transformed, born again, holy, constantly being renewed in its thinking, doing the will of God that's going to result in a humble mind that's going to want to serve and unify the local body. It's our second and last point. Verse 4, back in the text, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This is how Paul now is moving us from the personal to the corporate, life in the body. Because Christian life is about relationships. Your first relationship is to God, and then... It's how you relate to other people, starting off with the church, the local church. And he uses that word body as a metaphor. He's just drawing an analogy from our physical body to a local church body. In fact, the Greek word body has more than one meaning in this context. Context will give us our definition. It's more closely united to a number of people in a given society or a family uh, like a social community of faith like ours that are, that are all together, unified. And what I love about this passage and others is that we are unified yet diverse in the same way. We're unified and diverse. We're not all supposed to be carbon, co- carbon copies of each other, looking and talking the same way. But we're unified in Christ. I really like that. God loves that, not only in creation, but in his church. I mean, look around you. Look at the different looks and skin colors and cultures and where we're from. I love that about the church. It's just like, uh, it's just like when you think when you're overseas on a mission trip is we're going to be in Cuba this fall, and I've been in Haiti and far out places like Hialeah, New York City. And when you're in places like that, you have brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't it like wild when you can go to like another place and you're, you're a brother or sister in Christ and you hit it off like that and you like so connect? What is that? It's the Holy Spirit. It's life in the body. It's what Christianity, real Christianity is about. So get your priorities straight about your identity because a lot of us today is like, hey, I'm Cuban American. I'm Puerto Rican. Or um, Colombian, or African, or Irish American, whatever. I consider myself to be a Christian. I'm a Christian American. All right? That is just one unified, diverse body of believers. This is God's heart. Paul in Ephesians 2 talked about it this way. He's talking about the church now blended early with Jews and Gentiles, and he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. One household, one family. That theme runs throughout the Scripture, and it talks about, then it puts it together with how we serve one another. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Or you can just take note of these verses in your Bibles or your bulletin. Verse 12 says there, just as the body is one and has many members and are all the members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ. Verse 14, the body does not consist of one member. A member here is talking about, in the literal physical sense, a body part, like a limb. All right? A body doesn't consist of just one limb or one part. There's many parts that make up the whole. That's the analogy. All right? In fact, skip down to verse 19 there. If all were a single member, where would the body be? How good is an arm if it's not attached to a body? Doesn't it kind of just lay in there? It's like in a loose appendage. I don't think it does anything. That's the idea. Paul's very logical here. It's an excellent metaphor. By the way, for those of you that, again, struggle with the idea of church membership, well, here you have a passage that gives you a very strong analogy for that because we're members of a body. And then it says, verse 20 in 1 Corinthians, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So it's a both and, it's not an either or. You are an individual member, but you are part of, as diverse as you may be in appearance and gifting, you are part of one local church body, or you are to be. And you can see that is God's design. That's what the Lord wanted. In fact, in his high priestly prayer in the garden, the Lord Jesus praying to the Father, he said this, he asked this in his prayer, John 17, 21, that they, disciples, all of us, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. That's an incredible last phrase. Jesus is saying, You know how people will know that Christianity is real? That disciples are diverse and unified. He's saying so that, that they will see, just like you and I are together, Father, Father and Son in the Trinity, so is the church. That's a, that's a tremendous call. Verse 22 in the middle it says, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become, they again here, plural, is the church, they may become perfectly one, listen to this, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You know part of the reason why people stumble with Christianity? They see division in the church. You all can't get along with each other and you're trying to get me to go there. Really? What's the point? It's a strong argument. When the church is unified, even within its diversity, it is a tremendous evangelistic witness. That's what Jesus is saying. Even though we came to faith in separate individual acts, okay, like the old saying, God doesn't have any grandchildren, all right? You don't inherit Christianity. You have to believe. The believing community, us, real Christians, we live out our faith in fellowship with one another. That's the life in the body. You know that saying, the old saying, no man is an island? That's true of the church of Jesus Christ. Lone Ranger Christianity, that's a contradiction in term. Christians are not to be alone. They are to be in real community. That's real Christianity. That's no coincidence, the name of this church, Christ. Community, church. Christ is number one. We're in community as a church. And again, as we read in verse 4, don't discount the diversity of our gifts and our calling and our ministries, individuality. It says there we don't all have the same function. We don't all have the same that literally from the Greek has the idea of an office, a deed, work, a mode of doing things. not all the same. Ephesians 4 is really a helpful text. Turn there real quick, probably the last scripture that we'll really look at. And you can see as Paul's describing what Christ gave the church, how this comes together in that letter. A very familiar text, Ephesians 4.11, he gave, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, this is to the church, to equip the saints, that's all of you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You know why you get spiritual gifts? Because there's a lot of ministry that needs to be done for one another, and the three pastor elders of this church can't do it all. That's clear. And he wants us to attain to the unity of the faith, it says in verse 13, and to the knowledge of the Son of God. Get this, to mature manhood, to the measure, there's that word with the other meaning, to the standard of the fullness of Christ. Now, what was his objective in all that? Why why is he doing all of that? Verse 16, if you're in Ephesians 4, says, here's the analogy again. From the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We cannot grow mature in the faith without each other. If you're going to try to do it again as a lone ranger out on your own, it's going to be tough. Paul's really writing, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen that way. So before we get into the individual spiritual gifts, which many of you are probably very curious as I was at one time. What's my spiritual gift? We'll get into that next time. But there are universal gifts. There's a universal gifting of grace that you need to be reminded of. This is gifting. This is grace in ways that God has commanded everyone in the church universally to be doing, practicing, whether you get that extra proportion or measure of faith in that gift or not. Everyone is supposed to do this. These seven things I'm going to give you, one after another, rapid fire. You ready? Universal gifts for the local church body. Number one, faith. Faith. We've been talking about that. Second Corinthians 5, 7, as well as this text. I'm not talking saving faith, sanctifying faith, meaning we are to have faith to share with each other to encourage and exhort one another. Number two, wisdom. James 1.5 says, if we ask for wisdom, God will give it to us. Wisdom, knowing what to do with what you know. The skill of applying the word of God. We are to attain, go after wisdom. That's why Solomon gave us a big fat book called Proverbs to dig in there and get wisdom. Number three, knowledge, knowledge. The Lord doesn't want biblically illiterate people in his church. We have to study ourselves to be approved workmen, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. If if you're going to renew your mind so your life is transformed from last time, verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, you've got to have knowledge. You have to seek knowledge. What does the Bible say? What have great scholars and theologians of the past said about these topics and doctrines and theology we're talking about? Number four, exhortation. There are people with a gift of exhortation. They can really lovingly encourage people. I, I could pick out a number of you in this room that have that gift, and I think probably it's a spiritual gift. But everyone, Hebrews 10.24, is to encourage one another. 10.24, 10, 10.25, 10, right? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. You know, I mean, the pastors always remember that verse because that verse legitimately means stop not going to church, right? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Come together when the church meets. That's an exhortation in itself. But the idea is so we would encourage and exhort one another to good works. See, if you're struggling and you come to church on a Sunday or one of our community group meetings on Tuesday night, you can be encouraged by one of your brothers and sisters hey, let's pray together. I know you're going through a tough spot, a tough season here. That's exhortation. And that is a universal calling. I just gave you the scriptural reference for it. Everyone's to do that. On top of that, by a measure of faith, it's a spiritual gift. Next, giving. Giving. Is giving optional for Christians? That's a rhetorical question. Very good. Time, talents, and treasure. Now, some people are gifted actually the Bible talks about in one of the lists of spiritual gifts to give. People have a way of fundraising. We've seen that with the Cuba trip in the fall. There are people that are particularly gifted in giving, and not just because they have a lot of money, because there are a lot of people that have a lot of money don't give very much as a percentage of their income. In fact, you may not know this in most local churches. Those by percentage that have less give most. Chew on that one for a while. Next, care what we might call as a spiritual gift, helps, or mercy, 1 Corinthians 12.25. It's a gift. There are people who are particularly gifted, empowered by God's Holy Spirit to come to the aid, the service, the helps of others. Many of you in this room exhibit that. But is care and mercy optional? No. Everyone is to do it. We're talking about universal gifting. And last is the one some of us in this room probably hate that it's a universal call to do, evangelism. Oh, Pastor Bernie, you just said in Ephesians 4.11, God gave the church evangelists. I'm covered. I don't do that. And you got evangelists, right? Well, you have to reconcile that with all the messages in Scriptures about sharing your faith. Go, therefore, and make disciples to all the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them all I have commanded you. That is for all disciples. Oh, am I a disciple? Yeah, if you're in Christ, you're a follower, student, born again, believer in Christ, you're a disciple. So that command is for you. You're to evangelize, sow seeds. Look, God's sovereign in salvation, just sow and sleep. Sow and sleep. It's a beautiful thing. Everyone's to do it because Acts 1.8, the Lord said to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. So everyone's supposed to be a witness. We testify. We're ambassadors, 2 Corinthians. Our church needs to mirror the universal church this way. We're one body, okay? Many people here, but we're interdependent one to another. We want to understand every Christian is gifted by God, the Holy Spirit, for spiritual service in the church, being members... Or parts of one body, we need to use those gifts unselfishly and humbly. You never want to do anything or say anything that divides the body the local church. That hurts the heart of Christ. Hurts our witness. We want to unify always, as best as we can, even while being diverse in our gifting. Amen? I just close with a funny little story about a guy who refused to attend church. Pastor asked him why once. He said, I don't go to church because every time I go, somebody throws something at me. Preacher said, what do you mean? The man explained, he said, when I was just a baby and my parents took me to church, the minister threw water on me. And when I got married, the wedding ceremony took place in a church. They threw rice at me. Then, hearing this, the pastor said, and if you don't start going to church soon, the next time you do, I'm afraid they're going to throw dirt on you. <laughs> And I mention that sadly because this describes the situation for too many people. You actually have people who confess Christ. They say they're Christians, church attendance goes, it's three times and out. Baptism, marriage, and death. And for them, that qualifies as Christianity. Reading Paul? I don't think so. doesn't sound like It doesn't sound like it for an obedient child of God, that won't do. We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. That's an imperative. That's a command. That's not an option. God doesn't give a lot of suggestions. You know, going to church might be a good idea. No. He's saying, don't, in a negative, don't not go. Go and assemble. And you know what? Thank God for the church. The opportunities the body affords to fellowship for the ministry of God's word, the observance of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and for service. The church is a special blessing that God Himself has provided for believers. Amen? Why would we not want to be here? You know, that's the question I've told you before. They stump the pastor. Do I have to be a do I have to go to church to be a Christian? That's always the wrong question. I throw the question back at him. You a Christian? Yes. Why don't you want to go to church? I mean, it is commanded. It is life in the body. That's a red flag right there. I'm a Christian, I hate church. That doesn't jive. That doesn't work. Something is wrong as Jesus said in the Bible reading plan, there's something wrong in the heart of the person that says that. Either they're not in Christ or they are backslidden, they are having a problem, and listen, I sympathize, some have been burned, some have been burned by the church in the past, a local church, division, legalism, libertinism, bad shepherding, no shepherding, whatever the case may be, and the Lord says, you know what, this is a spiritual hospital, it's full of sick people, get over it. Find a local church body that has good preaching, good pastoring, shepherding, and good people. Three Ps. That's all you got to remember. You're looking for a church, pastor, preaching, people. If you found that, lock in. Be part of a community. Serve in it with your diverse gifts, all unified as one. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this local church body. For the last 10 years, we've just been striving to just make mature, multiply disciples, just loving you and loving others as best as we can, empower us in the Holy Spirit to rededicate ourselves, refocusing ourselves to do that in this ministry going forward as we get into the latter part of the year of our Lord, 2019. Lord, let's see more people come to Christ. More guests are coming to our church, and we want to continue to invite people to come and discover the abundant, joyful, soul-satisfying life that's only found in Jesus Christ. And if someone in this room, Lord, does not know you as their Lord and Savior today, they're not sure. They're not sure where they would go if they were to die today. They could know by turning to you, turning away from their lifestyle of sin and selfishness, and turning to you by trusting in Jesus alone as the one that paid the price for for the penalty of their sins, so that they can be forgiven. It's a glorious gospel, Lord. May the Holy Spirit work in hearts today to bring someone to that and to that position, to that point where they would pray and confess and repent and believe in Christ for who he is and what he's done. Lord, I hope you'll do that in a heart today. And that person may even approach us during our fellowship time or want to get a cup of coffee or lunch this week and say, look, I heard what you talked about. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where I'm at, where I want to be. Help me. Holy Spirit will help you. Those that truly seek Christ will find him. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And may that happen today, Lord, for someone. Or more, in a great way. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Christ Community Church is a God glorifying, Christ exalting, and Bible centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's ChristcomChurchCom.org.